Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yo, check this out. This is Chuck D. And keep it locked. You are tuned into the library. The lives are buried. With Tim Inico. Right here, right now. Rapstation.com. Here it comes. Since the far-off days when man first heard a scratchy noise on a cylindrical drum accompanied by staccato human tones, it has been his aim to add breadth and depth, to give realism and spaciousness, and even where it applies, to convey actual movement. Intro, I start to go, my rhymes will flow, so get up and dance, cause Kane said so. If you were lounging around, it's time to get up. Pardon my expression, but I'ma tear shit up. I'll appear right here and scan dear. A mere musketeer that would dare to compare. He's a Grammy Award-winning rapper, a member of the Juice Group, a hip-hop god, and one of the most influential rap artists ever. He's Big Daddy Kane, and he joins me on the library with Tim Ironingkel on rapstation.com. Big Daddy Kane, thank you so much for joining me. Glad to be here, man. Glad to be here. So let's start from the beginning, the, the way beginning. Uh, you grew up listening to music your parents loved. Your parents listened to artists such as Teddy Pendergrass, the Isley Brothers, Marvin Gaye, Al Green, and Johnny Teller. So I was always curious, what drew you to hip-hop music and culture? And did you ever actually try or attempt to become a soul singer? <laughs> Not really. I mean, like, when my pops would go to work, I would, you know, sometimes put his clothes on and get in the mirror and pretend to be singing Marvin Gaye songs, but... I don't really have the types to be a singer, man. <laughs> uh, and then what also, what, what, so what, what, what kind of initiative uh, drew you to, I guess, the hip-hop culture and rap music? Well, I mean, you know, it was the new thing in the streets, and, um, you know, everybody was pretty much taken to it like water, man. So it was something that I thought was new, innovative, and, you know, I, I, I enjoyed it. Mm. So, I mean, you know, I just took to it. Cool. You said in a, I know you said in past interviews that uh, what you, what you feel that what caused artists uh, today artists have become lazy with their lyrics because they're not really they don't they don't really have the love for the music and they're basically kind of making music to sell albums. Um, so you obviously started your career at a time when no one really knew if you could make money off of rap music, right? Um, so did you have a backup plan at all? And how has your passion uh, for doing the music changed from when you first started? Well, um, my backup plan was to go to college for engineering. I was going to, you know, go to Adelphi College to take up engineering. But, um, you know, it, it was like, I, honestly, you know, at that time, you know, I saw uh, artists like um, Grandmaster Flash on the, the Furious Five, you know, um, you know, flossing a lot of jewelry and stuff. You know, so, I mean, I, I thought there was money in it, but I did, that just wasn't my focus. You know, mm. my focus was just 
really to be, uh, you know, a dope MC. You famously wrote lyrics for artists such as Biz Marquis and Roxanne Chante. Uh, when you when you when you write for a different artist, how 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 important is it for you to know the artists uh, personally? I mean, do you do you feel that you need you're using them as a vehicle to express their what they would express? Or are you using them as a vehicle to kind of express what Big Daddy Kane would express? I think it's very important to know the artist. Like when you take Biz, for example, the stuff I wrote for Biz was in Biz style. Biz would come to me and say, yo, I need something like a zika, 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 And, you know, he would like show me the pattern of the flow and I could put it in his style. Now, with Shantae, I really wanted to write in her style. I wanted to really put it in that uh, Roxanne's Revenge type of style just making it super lyrical, but the label wanted me to put it in my style, which I knew wasn't going to really be comfortable for her because now she would have to go a lot faster than she's accustomed to going. And I mean, you know, even though Have a Nice Day and uh, Gone Girl did good for her, I just think that they could have been even better had they just been in her style where she was in a comfort zone doing what she do, you know, as opposed to trying to sound like me. Right. Is was it harder for you to write for a female artist versus a male artist? No, not at all. Um, it wasn't hard. I mean, because I mean, I, I mean, Shante is you know she she she's family. I, I've you know known her since you know um, you know I got down with, with with them, and um, you know I mean Shante is one of those artists that don't really have no boundaries. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's 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 not like I would have to say okay, well that's a little too vulgar for her or that's a little too masculine for her. Shantae is known for having a raunchy mouth, so it's like I didn't really have to limit myself, you know, right for her. And that goes to what you were saying about how important it was for you to know, obviously, the person you're writing for, because you, know yeah. you know the limits or you, or you know that you could be unlimited. Um, in 1987, you debuted your, you know, your single, Raw, and you seem to have created, you know, you from all the talk and all the interviews, you obviously created this this track with a with a purpose. Um, so, for you, how many drafts did you write before you knew that the mission of this track was completed? And then, is this your favorite track in your career? My favorite track in my career would probably be "Set It Off." Oh, nice. But with "Raw," with "Raw," what really happened? It was like, um, you know, um, I had the song out with Biz, uh, just rhyming with Biz, and. Everybody thought it was a big song, so no one was hiring me to put shows. So I was pretty much broke with a hot, you know, hot single out because I wasn't getting any shows, you know. So I kept begging the label, yo, let me just put something out by myself. When uh, when Tyron Williams finally agreed, um, I I wrote Raw, but I originally wrote it to um, a Marley Mall drum track. Like there was a drum track that Marley Mall had made, and I originally wrote it to that. But um, the day I was going to record it, like I, I was coming to the studio with the um, the Mama Feel Good um, horns for Marley to sample that so he could sample that to use for the chorus. But I was going to go over his drum track, but the day I was headed to the studio, I stopped by Downstairs Records, and a guy that worked at JC, he said, you know, yo, I got these new James Brown imports in. It's like him singing over just the drums, no other music. You need to hear him. Mm. And when he played uh, 
Bobby Bird, I'm coming. I was like, I'll take that right there. That's what <laughs> I need. So we got to the studio. I told Marley, now nah, forget that. Loop this up. You know, and I left and went to the store. When I came back, he had looped up the wrong part. Nah, I need the one with the offbeat snare. Like like two bars in, there's the snare goes offbeat. Just loop it up from there. Mm. And then he had to, because you know, that's when we were using two inch. So he had to resample that part and retrack it through the um, uh, for the two inch all over again. And then, you know, that's how we did it. So, so is that, I mean, is, is that a typical. Um... I mean, obviously, the, 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 that exact story wouldn't be typical. But for you, is that um, is that is that the best way for you to write or to create uh, an album or a track? Is to write the lyrics first and then kind of get the beat after it, or is it or is it just it's every 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 track is a, a different? No, I mean, you know, it differs. You know, like um, like I did a song called "Get Into It," and I wrote to the beat because the rhyme pattern was following the drum the drum pattern. So it was like, you know, that's something where, you know, you had to write to the beat, you know, to really make that work. So, um, you know, writing to the, the beat is good. It's just, with, with Roy, it was the type of thing where I just heard an amazing beat and thought that this would be much better than what we were about to use. And I just made the rhymes fit that beat. I want to go to another, obviously another track you, you wrote, uh, uh, Young, Gifted, and Black off your second album, It's a Big Daddy Thing. Um, it seems to be partly an argument you're having with people who don't think rap is art or music. Um, so was, I wanted to ask you to kind of take us back to the time you wrote this track. What arguments were you hearing against rap music as an art form? And do you think those arguments have changed? Do you think people have come around to realize that rap is an art form or, and it's music? Yeah, I think that <laughs> I think that some people have come around to realizing that. However, I think it may be the wrong people. What do you mean? I, I think that, you know, um, that a lot of people have come around to respect um, uh, hip-hop as an art form, respect it as a genre of music. But I don't think that it's the musicians that are doing that. I think that it's the labels and um, the media and what they're doing with it is um, they're using it in a commercial way that kind of destroys the culture. Right. So they're saying that they could make, they could obviously, they're accepting it as an art form because they're, because kind of, they can I, make money off yeah, it. Yeah, because they can make money off it. Because they can make money right. off it. And if they couldn't make money off it, then they wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, I feel like, you know, like, you know, um, media, um, radio, and record companies have found a way of making money off of this by commercializing it and um, making it equivalent to pop music. Right. That way it becomes a multi-million dollar, you know, thing. And you can make a whole lot of money off of it. But in the process of doing that, you know, you have so many artists that uh, become fly-by-night artists and here today, gone tomorrow. And they never left nothing. Like, they they, they never left no substantial song, nothing um, from their short-lived career to really be remembered by, you know. There's people that argue that in order for the 
culture of the music to have survived this long, it needed to be commercialized. Um, where do you stand on that argument? I mean, I think that that's um, a bunch of BS because, um, you know, it's like when rock and roll started to um, become commercialized, you still had um, the Rolling Stones and um, Arrow Smith and so you know others uh, going strong, still doing what they do, still being respected for what they do. You know, so I mean, I'm not saying that hip hop shouldn't have a commercial side. It should. I'm not saying it shouldn't have commercial. It's because I mean, throughout its um, you know. Throughout his years of existence, man, you know, we've had a lot of commercial hits on Hammer Can't Touch This, Ice Ice Baby, um, Wild Thing from Tone Low, um, Parents Don't Understand from Will Smith. You know, I mean, there's always been commercial songs that have coexisted in what we do as a culture. And there's a place for it, you know. I don't sit and deny those songs as not being hip-hop songs because of the simple fact that rap music actually has no music. It's always something that we've done for other people's music, and we have rhymed over pop music. Right. So there's a place for those songs, you know. I mean, so it all can work together. It's just that when you start saying that this hip-hop um, form of hip-hop is the true hip hop. This is what we want. This is all we want to play. This is all we want to put out. That the other stuff is some other underground stuff for for just a few people that stuck in the past. When you start doing that, then you're destroying a whole culture. And not only that, you know, I think you're destroying a lot of artists' careers, you know, because you're looking for that fast dollar from an artist to sell um, a hot single. And after that single isn't hot no more, you move it on to the next artist, and that artist becomes forgotten. He never gets a chance to grow or prosper. Do you think, I mean, what, what, you're, what, you're, what you're talking about now, do you think um, that the changes you talked about right now, do you think that kind of coincided with, it seemed like that coincided with the release of your seventh album, uh, Veterans Day, that you, know, you talked about, you deem, and you kind of walked away from uh, because the industry was changing. Is this the change that, the change you just mentioned, is, it, is, it, is this the change that you were seeing in 1998? Um, I mean, I saw, I mean, I walked, when I walked away, it was because of the changes in the industry. It was because of, um, you know, the person I was dealing with on that Veterans Day album. I just didn't want to go to jail. So I just said, you know, after this, you know, I chill. I'm good. That was just something personal with me and the person I did that album with, um, the, the person that was running that company. You know, I just saw that going a whole different direction. But I mean, uh, from the late 90s, I saw a lot of things in hip hop changing, you know, but um, I, I don't think nothing ever stays the same. And I don't think anything should. Right. You know, I don't think that that's what, you know, music is meant for. You know, I mean, if 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 you sitting there saying that, you know, the last um, dope MC that you heard was Jay Z and Nas. Then you saying that hip hop hasn't really elevated since the mid nineties. Mm. That's what you're saying, you know. 
I mean, so it's like music is supposed to change, you know. I mean, I thought that it was great for hip-hop when people started giving myself, KRS, Rakim Process, like, as being the greatest, because that showed the elevation from the Melly Mel, Grandmaster Cash, Kumo D era. When people started saying Nas, Biggie, and Jay-Z are the greatest, that showed the elevation from our era, from my era. You know what I'm saying? So it's like music is supposed to change, you know, you know um, supposed to take it to the next level. When it when it got to the point where uh, people were, you know, not really sampling anymore, you know, things like um, drum programming, using a lot of instrumentation, I thought that that was dope. But for one, it, keeps, it puts more money in the artist's pocket because you don't have to pay all that sampling costs. Right. You know, but, but and it's also elevating music. It's taking it to a higher level. So, I mean, you know, change is good. It's supposed to happen, you know. I just think that it's a lot better when it happens the right way for the right reasons. Right way meaning that music gets to grow and expand. Right reasons so that artists can be successful and have a future. When I, when I interviewed uh, Akumo D, he talked about his beef with LL Cool J and how it was falsely reported by media as the old rapper jealous of the new rapper. And he kind of said that the real beef was what Ella was representing at the time versus what like him and Public Enemy and KRS were kind of doing in terms of being more socially empowering in their rap music. Uh, for you, without getting into any, you know, any side of that beef, um, how are you able to, I mean, something that I think was really admirable about your career and currently and still is, is that you were able to balance being a rap, kind of a rap activist and the quote unquote, you know, ladies man of rap right so how were you able to balance both those sides and then kind of what what advice could you give to an MC that is struggling with that balance well I mean it's like honestly it's about being you and doing what you believe in speaking on whatever it is that you believe in, you know, I mean, you know, the same person that made what's going on made let's get it on. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, if you believe in unity, you believe in, you know, brothers, you know, having something positive to say or, you know, some uh, uplifted message, then speak on it. You know, you believe in, you know, um, love and sex, speak on it, you know? I mean, one, you know, it doesn't make you a hypocrite to speak on both because you talk about what exists in the world. Mm. You know what I'm saying? People struggle in the world. People, it's hard for people to find jobs in the world. But at the same time, people have sex. So it's all part of life. Right. In your in your career, you've... Uh... You you hung out with a lot of people that influenced you growing up. You know, you you mentioned a Quincy Jones, Barry White, to name a couple. Um, which of these people, when you first met them, were you the, the most starstruck from? And what was it Barry like? White. Oh wow, what was it like when you first met him? Uh, I, I was just standing there, like you know, like you know, catching them, you know, you know, from my, from my peripheral view, you know, like just catching from the side, you know, so he wouldn't see me staring, but like just fascinated, like, yo, I am at a cookout at Quincy Jones' house with Barry White. Like, I'm in the same backyard as Barry White. 
like I cannot believe this, man. You know, and and that, you know, then like you know, finally, you know, someone brought us over, introduced us, we talked, and everything, and um, and you know, he was just cool. Then like when we was leaving the cookout, you know, when I got into my car and turned, you know, the ignition on, I was listening to um um his um like a, a Barry White cassette. You know, yeah, that's how far back it was. <laughs> I was listening to a Barry White cassette, and you know, he heard it, and you know, he just pointed at me, ha ha, show sure you right, Kane. <laughs> Wow. And um, you know, then um, I was like, "Yeah, man, I've always been a big fan." He, he was like, "Well, we need to do something." And like maybe like two weeks later, I got the call from um, Alonzo Brown, who was working at A and M at the time. When when you did a track with Barry White, I mean, how much? I guess doing doing a track with one of your your one of, someone who influences you. How how much pressure do you put on yourself to kind of deliver? Um, it wasn't no pressure at all. Um, you know, I knew the perfect person to do it. Um, this guy, Andre Booth, who, um, you know, had already played on the To Be A Man joint, uh, that I did with Blue Magic and, um, The Day Your Mind from the Long of the Cane album. Um, like with those songs, it was, he was the type of dude where you had to tell, okay, too much. That's a little too much for hip hop. Cause he would be trying to make it a full blown 48 track R&B production. So working with Barry White, here's my chance to say, Andre, do what the hell you want to do. Oh, wow. Nice. You know, and it made it a full-blown R&B production, and it sounded great. And, um, you know, I had this concept of I will, I, what would be dope is, like, play, well, play off of words, like saying all of me wants all of you, mm. you know. And, um... When I told Barry the idea, he looked at his man, JP, and, and JP just dropped his head and started smiling and like, you know, shaking his head like, wow. Because we, we and Barry, we were already talking about how much we had in common and didn't know our birthdays was two days apart. Oh, wow. um, we both like, um, like we both like um, eating Caesar salad for lunch, you know, that type of thing. It was right. like, you know, we talked about how much we had in common. So when I said this to him, he um, showed me that a song that he didn't put on an album, he had called <laughs> All of Me, Once All of You. And that actually was the hook that, you know, we use. We use his old hook for the song. We've obviously talked about your, you know, you growing up and having this kind of passion and influence for um, being influenced by soul music. So I've always wondered, what what's the most influential soul music record or track for you? Two of the main tracks that I'll probably listen to the most are Lonely Room by New Birth and um, Nothing Sweeter Than Love by 100 Proof Age Soul. What about them that kind of stands out for you? They're just like those types of like just to me it's like those are songs that really define soul where the beat is hard. It's like hard beats that you would want to rap to. And the brothers just singing on these songs, man, like the passion in their voice. Like, I like, you don't, it's like, the song may have had another writer, but the way they sing it, it sounded like they wrote that song that morning. Oh, wow. You know, I mean, the passion that you hear in their voice in these songs. And then the, um, the arrangement, you know, 
the way that the, the music is arranged, like the changes and, you know, how it transcends and everything. It's just, it's just crazy, man. Especially Lonely Room. Uh, I have a few more questions about kind of your career and uh, talk about what's the future for Big Daddy Kane. But uh, I have two two questions uh, that from stories I've heard from um, from Gary G. Wiz of the Bomb Squad. Uh, he told me that he heard that rhyming with biz was recorded through headphones. Uh, so the question is, is that true? And if so, why, no. did, that, why did it happen? So, no, we didn't record through no headphones. It was a freestyle, so therefore, um, there was no, um, there was no compression or no issues or nothing, you know, um, added, you know, to the vocals. Um, and we did, the mic wasn't sitting still with a pop screen. We was holding the mic in our hand because it was me, Biz, and these two girls, freaking frack, passing the mic around, rhyming. It's just that, um... The deal never went through with um frickin' frack with cold chillin', so um they kicked them off of the um track. That's why it ends so abruptly. Do I come off? Yeah. Because afterwards I was passing the mic to Frick and you know, before it could get to that they just cut it. Gary G was of the bomb slot, bomb squad also remembers uh, a young Gary G was at the time, remembers you recording uh Neff Respect for the Juice soundtrack. And he remembers you did it in one take and you just broke out. Uh can you tell us about this recording session? And did you know going in that you would just nail the track on one take? Um, well, I was hoping so because what it was was um, Hank Shockley had done drove me up a goddamn wall about this song and about getting it done that night. And I was like, I was coming from LA. You understand me? So I mean, yeah. I just you know caught like an eight a.m. flight that morning, which means I probably got up around five thirty. You know, and, you know, uh, I caught an 8 a.m. flight and got in that evening. And I already knew that Hank wanted. I told Hank I'll call him when I get home and, you know, we'll work it out. But um, honestly, I was actually just going to go home and take my ass to sleep and just hit front <laughs> on Hank tomorrow. Right. But when I pull up at my crib, Hank is sitting in my yard. <laughs> Jesus. So... I saw there was no way around this. You know, he was determined to get this song done. So, I mean, I'm tired, dead tired, you know, just want to sleep so bad. But I'm like, you know, like, you know, forget it. Let's just get this over and done with. You know, I mean, because it was like I wanted to work with Hank. You know, I've always been a fan of the Bomb Squad. So I wanted to Hank work with Hank Shockley so bad. But not under these circumstances. You know, I wanted to be where I'm refreshed and I got it together and I could really get the right mindset. But that night, I really couldn't. Because I honestly, I think enough respect could have probably been, you know, done even better had I just got there, heard the beat, and was like, okay, nah, let me go here. You oh, know? Wow. But I mean, it was like, it was one of the situations where I, I had to get to a bed. <laughs> so I just did what I had to do and bounced. Uh, is this the only track uh, in your career that you've kind of banged out on one take? Or is, I mean, or obviously, uh, you've. You probably gotten better sleep since then, so you. Well, um, uh, just rhyming with Biz was, um, you know, one take. Because I mean, we actually tried to do the vocals over because of that freaking frack thing, so that it could end better. Mm-hmm. We tried to do the vocals over, but it didn't sound as good, so we just kept what we did. Um, but there were other songs. There were a lot of other songs I didn't one take. You know. Is that something that you've uh, th- you've kind of strived for in your career, or is this just just kind of? 
has come naturally to you to be able to do things in one take? I don't think that um, doing something in one take is important. I think what's more important is getting getting it right. Mm, okay. If it takes you a hundred takes to get that perfect one, then do a hundred takes. I would rather be sitting there saying, "Yeah, it took me a hundred takes, but we got those vocals right." You know what I'm saying? Right. Rather than sitting there listening to some idiot brag about, "Yeah, man, you know," and I I did that in one take, and it sounds trash. And I'm like, you know, like. Okay, so that's why I sound like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, years ago, you did a track uh, it's, uh, with uh, Joel Ortiz, uh, the Brooklyn Remix track. Um, Ortiz, obviously, is a straight lyricist who really seems to bring heart to all his rhymes. Um, is there anyone you would compare him to from the True, the true School MCs? Um, I mean... um. Ortiz, to me, I would probably um, call, I would probably say that he's from the Coogee Rap uh, family tree. I would say that it was, you know, from G-Rap to Big Pun to Joel Ortiz, I would say that that's the family family tree right there. I think he learned from Pun and Pun learned from G-Rap. And in my opinion. Do you think there's a, would you want, would you, would you guys, have you guys ever talked about doing, uh, I don't know, something, something more together? Yeah, 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 yeah. We've actually been dis- uh, discussing doing something and um, hopefully we'll get to do it in the very, very near future. Cool. Uh, the 25th anniversary of It's a Bag, Big Daddy thing and the 20th anniversary of Daddy's Home is, they're, they're both coming up. They're actually right around the corner. Um, what are your thoughts looking back at these two albums? Anything you would want to have done differently? No, nah, I mean it's big. It's a big daddy thing. Is you know my favorite album of my collection. So yeah, I take you know, you know, I call them serious pride in, in that project. Uh, that's like that's my favorite one. Um, Daddy's home. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would have probably. I, I would. I would. I would keep all the rhymes that I said on that album. I would have just flowed different. Uh, we was having this conversation. You know, somebody was having this conversation a few nights ago uh, about Daddy's home, because um, you know, with Taste of Chocolate and um, Prince of Darkness, these albums that I did really just rushing, trying to hurry up and get out of this Warner Brothers deal because I was unhappy with the label. But after Prince of Darkness, um, it was like, um, you know, a lot of people saying like, "Yo, people saying you fell off." Yo, people saying your stuff is whack now, man. So when I did Looks Like a Job for, I went in the studio trying to really make a good album. And I got all the right producers, large professor, track masters, Easy Mo B, but it still didn't take off, you know. And I mean, I couldn't understand. I'm like, you know, lyrically, I'm, I'm like, I'm killing this lyrically. And, you know, these brothers blessed me with some amazing production, you know. And it wasn't really till Daddy's Home when I was really listening to my stuff, comparing it to like um, Wu-Tang and um, Redman and certain other artists, I'm realizing, you know what? My tone is so 80s. I'm ahead of the beat, the way we, you know, while these dudes is more like, you know, it's like it's the flow is a lot slower. I'm like, that's, I think this is what I'm doing wrong. I'm flowing wrong. 
like I found like one of the old dudes. And that's when I started like, you know, hanging with a lot of, you know, um cats uh, getting ciphers with my boys over um on Prospect um in Brownsville, getting a cipher with them ciphers with them. Um, cats I knew out of Brie Voice Projects called the Nation, you know, getting a cipher with the younger generations, spitting with them, you know, and I adjusted my flow differently. And I think it shows on um, Veterans Day. You listen to Veterans Day, my flow is a whole lot more tighter and more synced with what was going on, what was going on in that era. What? You know, so that was like, you know, like with looks like a job for in daddy's home. Those takes I made, my flow wasn't right. So if I could change anything on Daddy's home, it would be my flow. When 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 you when you when you when you do something where you have to change your flow, does that cause you to write differently? Uh, I, I mean, I mean, do that's what I'm asking is when you know you're yeah. changing your flow, do are different lyrics bound to come out from if you have? Um, it? Well, it causes me to write differently because now for me to slow my flow down, I mean I'm gonna have to use less words. Mm. Right. You know, because I'm used to putting a whole bunch of words in one line. Right. You know what I'm saying? We're like a, you know, you know, we're like a, a line where it's like, you know, I'll give a speech like a reverend, rapper star separate. You know, I would have to, you know, speech like reverend, rapper separate. You know what I'm saying? Mm. I would have to, like, take words out to slow it down. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. But it was not a problem. You know, I mean, it wasn't nothing uncomfortable. It was just that I just couldn't figure out what the hell I'm doing wrong because I'm sitting there looking at the lyrics saying it. And I'm like, man, this shit is fire, man. What are they talking about? Right, exactly. But, you know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But then, um, you know, when, I'm, when I finally took a chance to, like, listen to it compared to somebody else, I'm like, man, what I said is sound a whole lot better than what he just said. But you know what? He said it so slick. So we're like you, you in the groove, you know. So, so is that? I mean, that seems interesting because has that always been the case? Where I guess flow outperforms lyrics in hip hop. Mm, it can be in a lot of cases for the simple fact that, um, you know, it's nothing. It's like nothing like a song that you can sing along to. Right. Right. You know. I mean, you take songs like Lottie Dottie or Top Billing, big hits that's not super lyrical, just, you can just sing it word for word. Right. Like Rick, Rick, Rick or Milk D, they don't have to say nothing. They can you just point the mic to the crowd, the crowd can sing the whole song word for word from top to bottom. Right. In 2013, when you helped form the group uh, Last Supper, um, how'd you know it was time for you to kind of start creating new music? after being so disappointed by the music industry? Well, I mean, that ain't my album. I wanted to do something, and um, I've always wanted to create a soul project, you know, and, um, you know, that's that's the band's album. It's not my album. So it's not like as if, like, Kane came out of retirement and made another album. That's not my album. That's the band's album. I'm just on it. And, I mean, that's something I've been doing. I mean, um, I did um, I did the joint with Game. Um, I did a song called This Is How We Do with Snoop. Um, that huge joint next up. You know, I'm the Joel Ortiz joint. You just mentioned Brooklyn. I mean, I've been featured on other 
artists, you know, songs. You know, I don't have a problem with doing that. You know, you call me about, you know, doing a verse, I'm there. Let's do it. But sitting down trying to create some 10, 12, 15 cane tracks, I don't know anytime soon. What's the future for uh, Big Daddy Kane? Hopefully Big Daddy Kane will be sitting behind a desk doing something productive um, in the music industry <laughs> or film industry where, you know, I don't have to be, you know, running around, you know, jumping up and down on stages and stuff as much, you know. But that's the future. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I love performing. That's pretty much the only thing in hip-hop that I still have a serious, strong passion for. I love performing, you know. And, I mean, I love, you know, getting together with young artists that, that you know, that, that that's flames, you know, and doing, you know, music with them, you know. Um, I, matter of fact, I just did something on Saigon's new album. Oh, you wow. know, um, I, yeah, I love doing stuff like that, you know. Hip-hop god, legend, Big Daddy Kane, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me in the library with Tim Eidenkel on rapstation.com. You got it, my brother, and um, the pleasure is all mine, and much respect to you guys. Keep up the good work. And when that individual comes, I make no apologies for what I'm about to say. Rough, rugged, and real, you're gonna stand still to obey your case, so let the man build words of rapture that you have to capture. And I just slapped you with a handful of literature. This dope, death, fresh, hype, choice, smooth, and poor. Rappers I replace, rub out, and erase. Competition, you must be on free base. Smoking or joking, bound to be broken. Now get your damn hands off the mic that I'm choking. Cause I got a stranglehold. You're still cold off a roll for the road you stole. Rhymes that you yell out, but you did sell out. Crossed over, lost over here, and I get the hell out. I'm not a pop star, rock and roller, I'm a rebel, blessed, able to hold a mic like a hammer, and drop grandma, treat a rapper like a wrestler, and body slam them. those who dispute get treated just like a prostitute, they get the boot and played like a flute, but you're so mute.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.